HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine. I'd like to invite you to check out ChefSteps.com. It's a free website we've created as a place to learn new cooking techniques and collaborate with curious cooks from around the world. Sign up now at ChefSteps.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Issues. This is Dave Allen, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from New Orleans, Louisiana. But the rest of the Cooking Issues crew is coming to you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, where they're sweating in their chonies right now without air conditioning. How are you guys doing? Fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have uh, in the studio today, we actually have a full crew over there. We have, uh, I think we have, do we have Jack Angel in the engineering booth? or? Uh... No, just me today. Oh, uh, he made you suck up the heat. Thanks, Joe. Uh, but in the uh, actual uh, little place where we do the show, we have Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, as usual. We also have Peter Kim from MoFad to talk more MoFad goodness with us. And Piper decided to go and take a hit with us today. How are you doing, guys? Fine. Good. Yeah, yeah, good. All right. So listen, a note on, uh, a note on uh, MoFad, the Museum of uh, Food and Drink. This is the last cooking issue show before our Kickstarter ends. Kickstarter ends on this Saturday, and uh, right now we're still pushing towards our goal. We super-duper need everyone's help on this. I mean, it's very critical that we uh, make and break through this goal to get the puffing gun in the museum kind of on track. Peter, you want to say uh, a few words here? Yeah, we've got four days. We need to raise over $14,000 of, you know, it's not just about launching this puffing gun exhibit but it's really about generating momentum for the museum as a whole and uh you know we can't really get into the details here but there's a lot more at stake than just this exhibit uh there are a lot of uh let's just say important people watching and if we have a strong showing here we show that there's broad support for a food museum here in new york which i think there should be 
uh, then a lot of great things are going to happen for the project. This is really going to help us rocket forward to opening up New York's first brick-and-mortar food museum. It's something we really believe in. We need your help. Please get on to Kickstarter at boom.mofed.org right away, boom.mofed.org. We really need your help. Thanks, guys. If you've already backed it, right, you can always go in, manage your pledge, kick in a few dollars more. It's not going to hurt you. You don't have to only pledge whatever you pledge to get your T-shirt or whatever. Am I right, Peter? That's right. And actually, real quick story. I was on the phone with my brother the other day and uh, you know, lamenting to him how stressful this whole process is. Um, and I was talking to my eight-year-old nephew, uh, Oliver, and Oliver uh, basically was telling me how amazing the puffing gun looks and how he's so excited about seeing it. And then he said, I'll try to do uh, a little impression. Uncle Peter, uh, Uncle Peter, I-, I looked in my piggy bank. I have $10. I want to donate $10 to the MoFed Kickstarter campaign because I want to see a puffing gun. Uh, wow. Are you, gonna, are, you gonna, are you guys out there going to disappoint that kid? Seriously. <laughs> my eight-year-old nephew, he wants to donate $10. I'm not taking the $10, but that is like, I mean... Basically, I think he's uh, he just gave away his whole life savings right there to MoFed. Right. And so if an eight-year-old can do that, uh, you know, we've got awesome stuff. $30 gets you a great T-shirt. $50 gets you a tote. 300 bucks, and you can see Dave, Harold McGee, uh, Wiley Dufresne, a bunch of other chefs uh, puffing whatever they want in the puffing gun. And we'll be doing some really interesting stuff there. Yeah, no one should be disillusioned when they're eight. Nine. Nine is the, is the year of disillusionment. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It goes on you know what I mean? There. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's, I figured, like, let's see where we can sweeten this up a little bit. People who have listened to the show for a while uh, may remember several years ago when I lost a bet. And the bet was, uh, the bet was to uh, whether or not someone could produce uh, a raw chocolate that I thought was even marginally uh, halfway decent and worth eating as chocolate, right? And if I lost, uh, I would have to eat uh, raw vegan food for a week. And I did. And, you know, no offense to people who eat raw vegan every day, but it was horribly unpleasant and wreaked havoc with my uh, GI tract. Let's put it that way. So I was going to put this to you guys there in the studio. Can we think of an equally unpleasant thing that I can do? And then let's say, okay, I bet that we don't get more than $10,000 more than, uh, than, than what we want, so in other words, that we won't make it to 90. If we make it to 90, I'll go through with whatever unpleasant thing that, uh, that we think we should do. What do you think? Finish your book on time. It's <laughs> uh, too late. My book's already late. Busted. Busted. I can't finish something on time. It's already late. I mean, we can create a new deadline. Yeah, yeah, right. You can always create a new deadline. My question is something that the reader, that the listeners care about, right? Like, is there anything unpleasant that I can eat, some, like, horrible, stupid diet that I can undertake for a week or two? Well, here are things we know that Dave hates. What does Dave hate? Dave hates wraps. Dave hates natto. Dave hates cherries. Well, Well, I don't hate them. I love them. I just can't have them. (laughs) Piper, you probably know better. What, What other stuff does Dave hate? Um... You could do 40 hard-boiled eggs like Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> well, that's more of a physical challenge. I gave that sort of thing up. I mean, like, that gave that sort of thing up when I was in college. I mean, I was that guy in college who, uh, I was that guy in college who uh, would eat, you know, anything for like, like two bucks. I was like so cheap. I once ate a gallon of salsa for, I think, three bucks. I ate like a couple of those, uh, you know, like whole tea bags for like a dollar. That was like, I was that guy. That was me. So in college, that guy. The bar's pretty that was high. Me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. a gallon of salsa for three bucks for ninety thousand. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not that guy anymore. So once you have kids, my wife's like, really? You can't, you can't do things that dumb because it, uh, you know, it makes it, you know, it sends the wrong message to the kids. You know what I mean? What about the lemonade cleanse? Oh, that actually be Ooh, what's, good. What's the lemonade cleanse? It's like uh, maple syrup and lemonade and uh, cayenne pepper, and that's all you get. All day long. I mean. I could do that. That's just unpleasant, but it doesn't have me learn anything. It doesn't have me, like, is there anything that I've derided horribly? Let's think about it for a couple minutes. And, uh, uh, by the way, call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. I'm going to read something in from uh, one of our listeners and supporter of MoFad. By the way, since I don't know them personally, do you think it's Jean Doe or Jean Doe? Jean Doe would be the better Twitter, Twitter handle, right? Jean Doe? It is Jean Doe. And Dondo, I've, yeah. I've spoken with him extensively. This, this guy has been a superstar, really helping us with the outreach. Yeah. So he wrote in and said, I've learned a lot from your cooking issue show over the several months listening to your podcast. I'm pretty close to being caught up on all the back episodes. Thank you for freely sharing your in-depth knowledge as well as making uh, the methods and techniques so accessible. Also, the MoFab Kickstarter is a food education game changer, and I wish you all the best of luck in getting it back. I'm doing what I can do to spread the word. Here are a couple of my thoughts on Boom, which is the name of the Kickstarter, by the way. Uh, on Twitter, uh, post requesting puffing ideas, I recall Sean Brock suggested, uh, I'm going to, should I pronounce it the way you hate? Pharaoh. Nastasha hates it when I say Pharaoh instead of Faro. Anyway, Faro and uh, at Mark S. mentioned sorghum. Uh, ideas are good, but what about encouraging grain uh, farmers, chefs, etc. to donate interesting ingredients? An outreach, an outreach program that would get more people excited about Boom. It would be analogous to the communal oven back in the day. I was wondering if you could possibly create your own grain in quotes to puff. I understand that puffing has to do with grain moisture content and the hull containing the grain. The moisture part is easy. Is there a food technology one could easily leverage to create a pseudo hull? Well, interestingly, here uh, that is not. That is how normal popcorn style stuff works. But the puffing gun doesn't require the hull. The science behind the puffing gun and puffing in general. So when you're puffing a popcorn, what happens is you have starch and moisture, and you heat up uh, the starch and moisture, and the moisture is trapped not just because of the starch, but because of the uh, skin, the hull around the outside of the popcorn, until enough pressure can build up that it ruptures that skin and, boom, explodes into popcorn. In the puffing gun, you don't need that layer because you just seal it tight, and the whole thing goes under pressure. So there's no way for it to expand. There's no way for it to boil or expand when it's inside of the gun because pressure just simply mounts up. Then when you pull the lever, everything instantly puffs uniformly. So if you put popcorn in a puffing gun, it comes out as spheres. Uh, Peter's like totally jacked for that. because He's been like dreaming of these popcorn spheres since, since we got the gun. We haven't put, fired popcorn in it yet. Uh, but that's also why you can put dough-based things in, and that's how they used to make Cheerios. In fact, this gun was originally designed by Kellogg's to make Cheerios. So yes, you can make your own sort of uh, mix of grains and other starches and puff them in that, no problem. Right, Peter? Yep, that's right. You have a caller. Oh, uh, all right. Before I take the caller, uh, uh, Jean Doe finished out. Here's what he would like to puff. Azuki beans, black sesame, and rice. If it works, we could uh, make a tasty mochi-inspired marshmallow treat. Please tell your listeners that I back MoFat's Kickstarter, and so should they. Right? That's a good idea. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, guys? Going all right. Quick one for you. So I've heard you're uh, you got a certain affinity for game, and I'm a dude from Minnesota. We kill a lot of deer up here, about like 11 a year. And in my experience, all of our cooking has been with uh, using beef-based recipes to uh, and applying them to venison, which the results your mileage may vary. I was wondering if you had any suggestions as far as uh, better ways to make use of uh, all that game meat and uh, like any thoughts you have. Well, you have a circulator. Um, I do, yeah. 
Yeah. So how's this stuff been coming out? Uh, in other words, like when you do do the beef subs, I'm assuming you're doing them. Uh, you're doing them in, in a circulator. Are they still coming out? Um, how, how are they coming out? Like, what, like, tell me what. Tell me how the how the texture and the flavor of the stuff is coming out when it when it works. I mean, are you killing? Uh, are these younger animals or older animals by and large? Hello. Hello. Caller. All right. I Hello. Think we we yeah, okay. it. Are we back? All right. I think we're gonna have to hang up on this caller. What? What happened? The caller dropped out. Oh man! Because I had I had a lot of interesting questions to ask. So the questions I wanted is by and large is he getting younger animals or older animals? Because one of the issues with treating game like uh, beef is that the beef that we get is I mean no offense to beef but relatively neutral in flavor compared to uh, you know much older animals just because it's it's younger. And so game meats, the older they are, the kind of more flavorful, more different kind of flavors they're going to have. And if you're doing uh, low temper sous vide with them, which is a great idea because you don't have to overcook it and, and, you know, you can kind of, you know, cook it very gently without overcooking it. The problem is, is that some of these things can get kind of overwhelming when you cook them for a long time because some of those gamey flavors uh, that come out of what fat there is and other things in the animal tend to accentuate uh, over time as they sit in the bag. Uh, and also, certain older meats aren't going to get tender no matter what you do, just because the suckers are tough. I and mean, that's the problem we had when we cooked uh, we cooked that bear uh, and we cooked the lion, as opposed to the yak, which was freaking delicious. Stas, you remember the yak, right? Yeah. That, that was delicious. Um, so, you know, I don't know about any specific, uh, you know, to focus specifically on deer, because I unfortunately don't get enough of it to cook myself. But when I get back to New York... I'm going to take a look. Uh, I'm going to take a look at. You know, I have the um, after the hunt, which is John Fols's book on cooking uh, Louisiana game that he shoots down here, and I know he has a big section on deer. So I'm going to. I'll check out to see kind of what he thinks about um, uh, using deer to its best advantage, and then try, try to kind of tech those ideas up. Piper, you you uh, you guys have a lot of deer up in Vermont that you eat or no? Yeah. You ever look? You, you what? What have you? Because the low temp stuff I've done on deer. Uh, you know, I've done I've done more elk than I've done deer because people have brought me more elk than deer. I've done some deer. What like what kind of luck have you had with it on on uh, low temping it or recipes for it? I've never done low temp with it, but uh, sausage it works really well. Yeah, everything tastes good in sausage, yeah. man. Why haven't you low temped it yet? Because you haven't been back there during deer season or what? Yeah, I just haven't been back there in uh, in a while. So you're gonna rectify that this uh, this fall? Yes, I'll get my license. Yeah, all right. Hey, really? You invite me up? Can I come up? We'll go out together. Why not? All right, cool. Uh, all right, so then we'll, uh, we'll 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 get back on that. Okay. Um, you guys come up with any good good bad ideas for me? Cause I think, look, the lemonade cleanse, I'll do it. It's fine. I mean, if we decide on that, maybe someone can call in with something horrific for me to do. You could eat but, in Brooklyn for a month. Oh my God, that's just like that. The problem with that is I just won't see my kids. See, that's a, that's the thing. Like, I can't just move to Brooklyn for a month. You can bring them. And I'm not the one that hates Brooklyn. That's Nastasha that hates Brooklyn. Remember? Well, anyway. then, she, then she can eat in Brooklyn for a month. Uh, she'll never do that. She would rather die. She would rather see all of us die. She would rather kill you than eat in Brooklyn every day for a month. Am I right, Stas? No. No, what? You wouldn't want to eat in Brooklyn? Or you, re- you would do it? You would do it to save Piper's life? Sure. Wow. Nastasha, you are, you are a good person. Uh, Rory Mearns writes in, pronounced like Burns with an M, Rory Mearns. 
from New Zealand. Hello to the entire Cooking Issues team and Indy Jesus. Would Indy Jesus listen to Cooking Issues? Would any form of Jesus ever have any sort of Cooking Issues? Well, Rory, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, back in the 90s, I think it was, uh, the group King Missile answered this uh, in a song they wrote called Jesus is Way Cool. And uh, if you uh, remember Jesus is Way Cool, he can bake a cake better than anyone. Remember that? You guys remember that song? You guys don't know anything about King Missile? Are I all know you King guys Missile, but three I don't years know old? that song. What? I know King Missile, but I don't know that song. They had that one... Uh... Detachable Penis. Yes, yeah, exactly. everyone listens to Detachable Penis, and they don't listen to Jesus' Way Cool. You can't listen to Detachable Penis without you know, going further and listening to the Jesus' Way Cool. It's all about how Jesus like, you know, would be awesome like, to hang around with. You know what I mean? Because he's way cool. Anyway. Uh, I assume that's what he was uh, referring to. Anyway, uh, he's traveling from New York uh, to New York from New Zealand around September, October this year, and I had a couple of questions. One, I had some questions a while back about a red pepper sauce that you and your listeners helped me out with. Uh, this is a product that is sold here commercially. That's New Zealand. So it's totally legit. I'd like to drop off a sample for the Cooking Issues team to taste and critique if they'd like. I'd love to hear your opinions on this stuff. Where would I be able to drop it off? Roberta's, Booker and Dax, somewhere else. I just drop it at the bar, Booker and Dax. Right, Stas? Yeah, make sure you put my name on it or those, those fools there will just eat it. They'll just eat it and be like, oh, we ate this hot sauce. Don't know why I had your name on it. Am I right? Yes. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, bunch two. Well, in New York, I was hoping... What? What up? Bunch, what do you think? Bunch of jackals over there. Yeah, yeah. I, seriously, they're like vultures. Vultures and jackals. Any sort of scavenger. Some fly, some crawl. Uh, well, in New York, I was hoping to pick up a katsuobushi shaver, uh, shaver and hopefully some quality katsuobushi. The stuff is not available this far down under. Can you tell me where I can go for this? I don't mind spending a bit if I know it will be quality and will last. Okay, so for those of you uh, who don't know uh, kind of what we're talking about here, uh, katsuobushi is the, you know, the name of the shaved bonito flakes, bonito flakes, which aren't really bonito. They're uh, yellow skipjack. Or skipjack tuna, but uh, so you know the 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 flakes are the bonito flakes that you use to make dashi and innumerable other uh, delicious things in Japanese cuisine. Uh, so you, you know you call that thing uh, well various incarnations. There are different words for it at every step in the process. Katsobushi. So the way it's made is they catch the fish, uh, they uh, cook the crap out of the fish, they get the bones out of the fish, they dry the fish, they smoke the fish, they. They let it rest. They smoke it. They let it rest. They smoke it. They spray some uh, mold stuff on the outside for the really high. They can sell it just right away then, but then that's the lower-end stuff. And then the higher-end stuff, they, they put a mold on and they age it. And the really, really good stuff, you pick it up and you clink it together, and it sounds like uh, kind of like wood, like tink, tink, tink. Amazing stuff. My wife bought me some uh, from Japan when she went there maybe 12 years ago, and it's the first time I had the actual thing in my hand and not just the flakes. Uh, the thing was, I needed a shaver, much as you do now. The only place I know you can walk into New York and in New York and buy a real—it's uh, called, I believe, it's called uh, a kariki. So it'd be called like a katsubushi. Uh, sorry, not kariki, uh, kazuri. Um, uh, katsubushi uh, kazuri. And so they, the one that they have is at Corin. You should go to Corin anyway. It's a nice store down in Tribeca, and it's like you know candy for—it's like an amazing place. You know, you guys have all been there, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts? It's awesome. Get your knife sharpened. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a not. Oh, do you say it's a knife store? See, for, see, people who don't know Piper will be like, "It's a knife store," meaning, ah, how good could it be? It's a knife store. He's like, "It's a knife store. How bad can it be?" That's I said, what he, "Get your that, knife sharpened there by the dude <laughs> who's by the stream." Yeah. 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 Anyway, so uh, go to go to Corin. 
Um, I don't know how the exchange rate is. I mean, Corin is, you know, it's more expensive than it was, you know, five years ago because, um, you know, our exchange rate is horrible. But I don't know what the exchange rate is right now. The, the prices there, because they bring the stuff in from Japan, are directly tied to whatever our exchange rate with Japan happens to be at that time. But they sell it, and I looked online before I came over here, and it's about $86. Now, what it is, now, you can also go, by the way, they don't sell food, so you're out of luck actually buying that item. And the sad news is I have never seen anywhere in New York uh, good quality of the solid to purchase of uh, the actual katsubushi thing. Um, now, there are chefs who say they can get it, but I'm not really hooked into the sushi uh, suppliers, right? And none of the people that kind of were, you know, that I worked with when I was learning a lot about um, cutting techniques and ikijime techniques, or even when I was doing, you know, a lot of things with the Gohan Society, none of those people really shaved their own uh, flakes at their restaurants that I know of. And so, and, and then when you ask them for sources, they were very secretive, I guess, because there's a limited supply. So they never told me where to go get the good stuff. You can go to Sunrise Mart, which is kind of a local Japanese mart. There's a couple of them in New, in New York. And they, a couple of years ago, like four or five years ago, started carrying um, the actual solid ones, but they weren't the super highest quality ones like, uh, we, you know, like we saw when we were in Tokyo, which were amazing. All right. Second thing is, there's extru- oh, by the way, the, the shaving block, they also at, at Sunrise sell a really crappy little uh, shaver made of plastic and metal. Stay away from it. It's useless. You don't, don't, don't get it. Now, if you go on the internet and you look at people shaving it, by the way, what this shaver looks like is it looks like you took a wooden block plane, flipped it upside down, and put it on a box, and you shave on top of the box, almost like a mandolin or a benriner, right? Uh, only it is really sturdy and solid and beautiful because it's, you know, one of those Japanese things that, of course, they're going to make it sturdy and beautiful and solid, and it has to shave this thing, which is incredibly hard, this wood-like uh, piece of dried, smoked, fermented, molded fish. Now, uh, I looked at some people who were, uh, you know, doing their YouTube stuff, YouTubery in English, and all of them were doing horrible, horrible jobs. Uh, and, and by the way, when I use mine, I do a horrible, horrible job. The issues are that the actual moisture content of the katsubushi is critical to getting the shaving right. Otherwise, you get little scrumblings of nastiness or like kind of gummy peels. It needs to be just right. Uh, also, the technique you use in shaving has to be just right. Um, also, you know, if you're looking at katsuobushi, and you guys all use it, so you know what I'm talking about. If you look at katsuobushi, or if you look at the bonito flakes, we'll call them, uh, you'll notice that a lot of the ones that you buy have kind of a darker stripe running through it. You guys notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the that's the um, that's the chi line. That's the uh, the the blood line that's in the fish. And so you can buy uh, two types, well, many, but two main types of these bonito flakes, other than the quality ratings. And that is, you can get them chiari, which means there's a bloodline in it, or chianuki, meaning there's no bloodline in it. And one thing I've never been able to figure out is whether or not they do some sort of procedure to the actual dried fish and pop out that bloodline, or do they uh, just shave it in a way that they're not shaving that part of it when they shave that other stuff and they charge more? I have no idea because no one in English has mentioned this stuff. Now, the good news is uh, once, you, once you get a hold of this stuff, you can learn how to do it if you can watch a bunch of stuff. There's an amazing set of videos, but they're only in Japanese, and I wish someone could translate some of the things. Uh, and they're on 
Go to YouTube and search on Fushitaka, F-U-S-H-I-T-A-K-A. Uh, they have a three-part series. You can see it. They're the ones that have .mov in the title. So even you know people like me who don't understand any sort of uh, you know Japanese characters at all, you can find these, and they're worth watching even if you can't speak a lick of Japanese because the visuals in it kind of show uh, how it's done. Most interestingly, is no one in English that I can see publishes how to properly adjust this cutter once you get it. You need a wooden or leather mallet and what they do is they set the blade in and then they whack on it with a mallet to get the adjustment just right and in the video they show you exactly uh, how to do it how to adjust it right and how to adjust it up or down if the shavings that are coming out of it uh, aren't proper so I highly recommend watching that and they also meant they also show in visual pictures thank God that you want to store uh, that you want to store them at 50% humidity at about 20 degrees C or in a fridge that's wrapped uh, in plastic and then in a zippy. Now, another thing is they, I know that some people, Wiley told me, Dufresne told me once that they, some people he'd seen who had them wrap them in paper towels, I think moist paper towels, and nuked them for a second. And then in this video, I saw them when they had a problem heated over a flame. So I don't know if there's a, a trick there or not. Maybe someone who speaks Japanese could watch these videos and kind of tell us what's going on. But uh, there you have it. So I can give you some love on the actual shaver, but not on the high quality fish itself. We'll have to find someone else who can find us a good source of that. Maybe someone will write in. Okay, three. Well, in New York, uh, where would I be able to pick up a dual probe thermometer gadget like those on the Chef Step store? You know, the yellow-looking things with replaceable probes that everyone seems to use for sous vide. Uh, thanks and, uh, for keeping up the good work. I'm looking forward to experiencing all the great food that America has to offer, including American country ham, something I never even heard of before listening to your show. Uh, regards, Rory Mearns. Now, on the, on the probe, the only place I really go uh, to buy kitchen equipment like that in New York is uh, J.B. Prince. Now, J.B. Prince, it, again, that's another place everyone should go. You guys have all been to J.B. Prince, right? We have love for J.B. Prince. J.B. Prince, um, they don't carry a dual probe thermometer. And the other thing about J.B. Prince is, you know, like they, they get a rap from sometimes from people for being expensive, but the truth of the matter is they only carry kind of uh, high-end products. And so you can always get something cheaper. You're, like, you're not going to be able to get something at J.B. Prince that's the same price as the one on the Chef Step uh, website. Um, but they do have a single probe uh, thing. The other thing, when you're buying a, a thermocouple probe, a lot of people on, like, Amazon, for instance, will, will say that they have a hypodermic probe that works for sous vide, and whoever wrote that must have never cooked a damn thing in their entire freaking lives because they, they give you a probe that's way too wide and that when you puncture the bag doesn't reseal properly. Piper, you've seen that before, right, where someone says this is a hypodermic probe and it's, it's more like a hammer? We used to put a little piece of rubber over the hole. Yeah, well, you have to put rubber over the hole anyway, no matter what kind of probe you use. But the ones that, like, that you had at WD were, you know, sub-millimeter probes. They were thin yeah. and extremely fragile, by the way. So you never want to use it to check deep fryer oil because it can melt out the, uh, the thermocouple connections, the actual place where it's bonded together, and you, the thing is ruined. And those things cost well over, those cost like 100 bucks or over, uh, like almost anywhere you go. There are things called hyperdermic probes that are only a little bit thinner than, uh, than you know, like a standard 
instant read and that you know would would cause way too big big of a hole they're like well over twice as big as the actual hypodermic probes so i recommend going to jb prince and looking at the hypodermic probe they have but a secret trick if uh, no one ships the product you want to new zealand is uh you can use your new zealand uh amazon account i think to order on us amazon and have the stuff prime shipped to your hotel and i've done that when i do events even within the united states i've had stuff prime shipped to the hotel where i'm going to stay because you know in advance where you're going to be and you can ship anything you want from the u.s there like that and hotels will usually hold it which is a good technique but you should definitely go by jb prince and you should definitely go by uh corin and if you want to see a really good bookstore you should go by kitchen arts and letters right anywhere else good that i should think about guys Ah, they don't care. They're too hot. They can't even think straight over there. Okay. Uh, Joshua writes in, I have ropey yogurt. Nastasha, is there anything more disgusting in your mind than ropey yogurt? Nope. That's a new one. I'm going to start. Actually, Piper, you have to buy this. There's a yogurt I'll talk about in a minute called Caspian Sea Yogurt. Uh, Matsoni, Matsuni, depending on how you pronounce it. That is meant to be ropey, and we can get the culture and make it, and then just make Nastasha look at ropey yogurt all day long. Won't that be fun? I like different textures. I know you do. That's like the McGee thing. The McGee thing, now, this goes back to like something, you know, McGee uh, did a long time ago when we started doing the McGee cooking class. One of the things he said was, uh, very early, he was interested in talking about is, well, bad textures are only bad because we assume they're bad. What if you assume that that texture is good and then accentuate it? And so that's when he really started pushing this idea of stretchy ice cream with celeb dunderma, right? And, you know, kind of, you know, created a, uh, a whole thing around Celeb becoming popular. He also said, well, what if you really wanted ice cream to have giant crystals in it? Why does ice cream have to be smooth? And he, you know, showed the, uh, this French ice cream called, like, pin, pin, pin needle ice cream that I have to say uh, I'm with him in theory, but I didn't like the pin needle ice cream very much. You guys remember that one? Not really. You don't remember it or you didn't like it? I don't remember it. Ah, man, it's just like in one ear and out the other on people. Ah, whatever. So the whole point is, is that if you push a texture in a certain way on purpose, it can be nice even though it's not what you're expecting. So there's this, rope, uh, there's this yogurt that's ropey, that's meant to be ropey. Uh, and, and the other interesting thing about it is, is that it uses a uh, mesophilic culture, meaning that the, the culture does uh, it low temperature. So you don't need a yogurt maker to do it. You can culture it at room temperatures, and it gets this weird ropey uh, yogurt. You can buy cultures for it online. But anyway, back to the question uh, that Josh had, Joshua had. Uh, I've been making yogurt recently, and ha I've had several batches which turn out a bit ropey slash snot-like. They taste fine, but the texture is not what I would like. My typical procedure is to take milk with a bit of powdered milk added up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. kills all the stuff that's in it already. Cool to 110 degrees Fahrenheit and add one tablespoon of starter yogurt per quart and incubate at 110 degrees Fahrenheit for six to eight hours. Any idea what causes this rope-like texture? Well... I've never had it happen to me before, but according to the, by the way, ropey texture, well, I'll read you what it is. According to the sensory evaluation of dairy products, edited, edited by Stephanie Clark, Michael Costello, and Floyd W. Bodyfeld. How awesome is that guy's name? Floyd Bodyfeld. And uh, Marianne Drake, uh, who's very well known. There's, uh, on page 208, it says there are five major causes for ropey yogurt. Improper gums, meaning improper thickening devices that you're added, but you're not adding a thickener, so that's not your problem. Uh, microbial contamination, uh, which is probably what's going on. Uh, yogurt cultures containing polysaccharide-making bacteria. 
By the way, all these things add up to the same thing. Improper setting temperatures and too much sugar. Now, too much sugar probably is not what you're doing. All of the rest of the other ones basically uh, add up to this. There's some hydrocolloid being formed in, you know, polysaccharide being formed in your yogurt that's causing the ropey-like texture, right? And either you added that polysaccharide because you're using a thickener or a gum, in which case you probably misadded some pectin or something like that that's causing a ropiness in it. Have you ever had a pectin go ropey in a yogurt application, Piper? No. What about carrageenans go ropey? I never had a carrageenan go ropey. No, <clears throat> xanthan goes ropey. Yeah, but xanthan goes ropey, but pectins, when they go bad in certain acidic environments, can go ropey if they're not fully set. But you've never had it happen in yogurt? No, I've never encountered it in yogurt. Okay. Uh, so all of these things uh, basically point to the fact that there's a polysaccharide happening. Now, the question is, is, is it contamination, like a, a contaminant, bacteria uh, or whatever that's floating into your yogurt and causing the ropiness, or is it the actual yogurt culture that you're using uh, that's doing it? Now, it turns out that you know, yogurt most typically is a combination of a, um, I, I can't pronounce it, so like, I'm going to say it and it's going to be wrong because I've only ever read it, I've never pronounced it, but it's Lactobacillus delbrucki, I think it's pronounced, uh, bulgaricus, right? That's the one thing uh, that does it. And then the other, um, uh, the other one is uh, Streptococcus uh, thermophilus. These are the two that are used in normal kind of higher temperature yogurts, like the one that you're doing. Now, the lactobacillus, the lactobacillus can, like that strain can be either be a kind that produces uh, extracellular ropey polysaccharides or one that produces smaller unit polysaccharides that don't form a ropey texture. Surprisingly, you actually want a bit of that ropiness, but you don't want so much of the ropiness that it becomes ropey. So uh, the, the trick there is um, you're probably uh, maybe uh, doing it at a temperature that's favoring the, uh, the ropiness or you're letting it go too long before you chill it down to fridge temperature to kind of stop that acceleration and you're favoring the balance of the ropey uh, ones over the other ones. So you could just try switching your starter culture. Uh, you could try making sure, like covering it and make sure you're not contaminated uh, or you could try uh, maybe shifting your temperature up a degree or two and then chilling it faster when you're done. I don't know if any of those are going to work, but take a look into that. What do you guys think about that? Anything? Anything? He could try uh, switching the milk source, too. You got a problem it. with milk source? Well, I mean, it could be uh, contamination that is existing in the milk before he starts. Well, he heats it up to 180. Most, most everything is going to, most everything that's going to produce a polysaccharide like that's going to croak out before 180. Yeah. Just right? thinking about uh, eliminating uh, potential sources of contamination first. Uh, uh, uh. True, true, true. Got uh, to eliminate contamination, always. Uh, okay. Um, now, second question. I'm also interested in making a lean bread, meaning, I guess, I guess by lean bread, meaning only yeast, water, flour, uh, salt. Um, like a French bull, with about 50% of the flour as milled brewer's malt, both base malt and specialty kiln malt, in order to pair with beers of a similar grain bill. Would I need to kill any enzymes in the malt to make this work? Are there any different concerns with working with barley flours? Any help is much appreciated. Uh, okay, well, so this is, this is interesting because, um, because there's people out there who cook with nothing but sprouted grains, right? And so presumably these have a lot of diastatic uh, activity from the enzymes that are converted when you sprout it. Uh, you know, there's companies that produce 100% sprouted things. Uh, but then on the other hand, when you read recommendations for, um, 
for baking, if you're actually using diastatic malt powder, right, then they uh, advise against not adding too much because then it's going to convert too much of the starch to sugar and you'll get kind of gummy results in your bread. So I don't know where the balance lies because some people are using 100% sprouted grains and then some people are cautioning against using uh, more than a small amount of, uh, of um, you know, um, diastatic malt powder. I will tell you this. From experience, barley loaves in general are dense little suckers. Uh, you know, they're, they're dense. It's like 100% barley loaves are some dense. And especially the barley that you're using in brewing hasn't been pearled. It's got the husk still on it. And that's going to be like, the, like the, the, the part of the brand there is going to be like a paparama on your, on your gas cells in your bread. And so, like, if you're doing whole grain kind of unpearled uh, barley, I'm assuming that you're going to be in the area of some dents. Uh, and so you're going to want to soak the hell out of them, uh, maybe soak them overnight and then grind them that way instead of, instead of or maybe pre-grinding them like you would for mashing, then uh, let them soak in some water and then grinding them further so that the, so that the husks have uh, you know, enough time to hydrate properly. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of at a loss here. I've never done it. Uh, but I'm assuming it'll work. Any of you guys have any thoughts? I mean, Peter Reinhardt has a lot on sprouted, uh, sprouted wheat flour, um, but I don't have a lot. You know, the I don't have a lot on this. What do you guys have? Is it going to increase your yeast activity significantly during the uh, the rising? Hugely. I mean, that's why you add diastatic malt powder in the first place, is to convert in a, in a long fermentation time, uh, you know, situation, like in a sourdough or something that's going to be retarded in the fridge. You want to have, a, uh, you know, a continual supply of yeast for, I mean, sugar for the yeast to feed on while they're doing their stuff. And so adding the, you know, adding the diastatic malt uh, will continuously break down, like, some of the starch as a food for the yeast. You just don't want to overdo it. But then on the other hand, you have people baking bread that's 100% with this stuff. So I'm going to need some help from, from some, some people out there. I don't know whether it's just a difference because there's so much more higher enzymatic activity in diastatic malt powder versus like your average sprouted grain. But, you know, if you want the flavor, what I would do is I would kill off a section of the stuff and then have the, like a section of your, of your you know, heat it kill off a section of the en- uh, enzymatic activity, and then grind up some and leave it with the enzymatic activity. Um, you know, naturally, flour, when you have it, some of the stuff was sprouted because it's very rare for you to have, you know, completely uh, pure flour. When they're measuring the strength of flour, they use something called the falling number, where they take up, make a, a warm slurry of flour and they drop a rod through it and determine how fast it goes down. And what that's a measure of is how much residual enzymatic activity there is in the flour and therefore how much of the viscosity is broken down by uh, the amylases working on uh, the flours as they're there. But it's not a number that most of us have in it. I wish I had more information on this, but um, go take a look at um, go take a look at anything that Peter uh, Reinhardt has written. He's written a lot of excellent books on bread, and he's become over the past couple of years uh, kind of a proponent of using sprouted grain uh, flours. So he might have more information. And uh, there's a good section on the technical uh, uh, aspects of flour on bread, a baker's book of techniques and recipes by Jeffrey Hamelman. And a lot of that one's available in Amazon search inside, so you can go to that. Uh, lastly, 
Uh, Adam Milgram writes in on food safety. Hey, Nastasha, Dave, and the team, I was wondering if you could help me work out uh, if there's a way to tell definitively if something lurking in the back of my fridge is okay to eat or to do something to make it safe. Two recent examples. I had some chicken stock in there for two-plus weeks, and it looked and smelled fine, but the prevailing wisdom on the Internet is that it only lasts for three to five days. Three to five days seems kind of short, but two weeks plus, man. Okay. The other was stewed fruit. Again, smelled fine and no signs of mold or anything, but I have no idea how long it's been hanging around, maybe a month. Is there a process you can do to render anything safe, e.g. bring it to X temperature for Y minutes, so that all you need to worry about is taste, or are there other nasties that I need to worry about? Finally, is there any way to test things that you can't easily heat, e.g. mayo, cheese, hummus, etc.? FYI, my wife is pregnant, so food safety is becoming an increasingly important issue recently. Thank you for your help and your awesome podcast, Adam. Now listen, Adam, when your wife is pregnant, don't fool around. Forget the stewed fruit. Just pitch all that crap. Go crazy. Go ape in your kitchen. You know what I mean? It's like, here's the thing. Like, most likely, nothing is going to ever happen to you. However, like, now is not the time where you want an incautious food mistake to, you know, cause a problem when your wife is pregnant. You guys backing me up on this? I love how close to the edge this dude lives. (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, like, he's like, hey, I got a pregnant wife. I got this, like, three-week-old chicken stock. Eh. Get the new chicken stock. I'm just saying. Like, I went kind of over the top. It's because, you know, like the consequences of making a mistake at that point are like, you know, I, bleached the, I bleached the hell out of everything whenever I was cooking. One good thing, by the way, uh, I would just say this pitch, and I've said this before on the show many times. If you don't already own a circulator, when, uh, when you or your, or your wife uh, are, or you know, close family member are pregnant is the best time to get a circulator if you don't already have it because then you can still have your rare steaks and you can still have your uh, runny poached eggs even when you're pregnant because you can cook them to 100% food safety. Just a little pitch for getting a circulator, right? Anyway, I mean, I used to do that whenever... I didn't have a circulator. I think I had a circulator when my second son was born, so I made that stuff for my wife. But I made that stuff, you know, for, anyway, I make that stuff for pregnant people because that's, that's awesome. It's an awesome, awesome little trick uh, to help pregnant people uh, keep a little bit of uh, food normalcy in their life. Okay, uh, now back to your question at hand. Here's the issue. Um, most bacteria uh, don't like to uh, grow in the refrigerator. And, in fact, like that the temperature zone for the refrigerator is chosen such that, uh, you know, things don't grow in it or they don't grow in it very Rapidly. Now, there are bacteria that do grow in the fridge, uh, that are known to grow in the fridge. Listeria is one of them. And listeria is one of the ones that you really, 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 really don't want to expose your wife to when she's pregnant. Uh, now, the lucky thing about listeria is that if you take something out of your fridge that's in there, right, and it's had listeria growing on it, then you can uh, kill it, wipe it out, by just heating the crap out of it, right? Because listeria doesn't produce any, uh, any, anything that can survive heating. It doesn't produce a toxin uh, that, you know, that, that, you know, that stays in the food after it's been heated. So all you need to do is heat it sufficiently to destroy the listeria, and then that food is fine. The problem is going to be with things that – so there are certain – uh, bacteria that produce enterotoxins, things that you take into your body that, uh, the, that are an actual chemical that causes food poisoning that aren't just, uh, you know, the effect of having, uh, you know, the actual uh, bacteria inside of you. And some of those are destroyed by heat and some aren't, right? And the, 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 the further complication is, is that there are certain strains of some of these bacteria that normally don't grow in the fridge, but uh, that 
there are certain strains that will grow, albeit very slowly, in a fridge. And so if you push something for a long time, right, you know, you can uh, get into a situation where these things can grow to levels that are problematic for you. Now, um, the, the general term for bacteria that grow in the fridge at low temperatures is psychrophilic. I, mean, I don't know why they call it psychrophilic, not cryophilic or something like that, but it's called psychrophilic because I guess that's the Greek for cold or something like that. Uh, and psychrophilic bacteria are the ones that ruin your milk, right? Even though it's in the fridge, the milk goes bad. Those are psychrophilic. Those are spoilage bacteria. They're not going to hurt you. The dangerous ones, though, are a subsection of the psychrophilic bacteria that are called uh, psychotrophic. And the, the thing with those is, is that they are actually mesophilic bacteria, ones that grow in kind of normal temperature ranges, that can also retain some of their, uh, uh, their, their nasty growing habits in the fridge. And those guys, there are strains of those from your common ones that we always get. For instance, um, uh, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a paper you should take a look at called The Incidence of Foodborne Pathogens in Domesticated Refrigerators. Uh, domestic, uh, not domesticated, that'd be crazy. Like you have a wild refrigerator and a domesticated refrigerator? What am I, a dunce? Anyway, domestic refrigerators uh, by V. Jackson, 2007. Here's what it said. The interior surfaces of household refrigerators are at risk of becoming contaminated with foodborne pathogens, increasing the risk of cross-contamination to other food items, including higher to uh, higher risk ready-to-eat foods. Um, okay, so they, they went and they looked at 300. 42 uh, domestic refrigerators, and uh, here's what they had to say. Campylobacter, Salmonella, and Escheria coli uh, 0157H7 were not recovered from any refrigerators, but Staphylococcus aureus, which produces uh, a, by the way, a uh, non-heat labile um, uh, enterotoxin, was uh, recovered from 6.4% of the refrigerators. Listeria monocytogenes uh, and uh, regular kind of E. coli uh, from 1.2% of refrigerators. Uh, Yersinia enterocolic, uh, ent- I can't pronounce it, y- Yersinia, right, from 0.6% of the uh, re- uh, refrigerators. Uh, and as a result, uh, and as recovered species can survive and grow in refrigerations or conditions of mild temperature abuse, such pathogens may transfer to and develop to clinically significant numbers uh, in food and domestic fridges. So they can grow a little bit. So I wouldn't, but again, these are like ones that are sitting there and they can form kind of biofilms and get together with, you know, the normal uh, pseudomonas, which are like, you know, the ones that ruin your milk. Uh, and so I would just be wary of, uh, you know, most, these things aren't going to kill you, but you don't want to give them to your, to your wife, you know. Uh, in addition, I did some more research, and some of the, like, if you have, like, temperature-abused rice, you can get uh, B. cereus, Bacillus cereus, which is one of my favorite words for a pathogen. Uh, and that, apparently, some strains of it can grow at low temperatures. So you really just want to, I wouldn't mess around. What do you guys think? Don't mess around, right? Get a chest freezer. Get a chest freezer, freeze the hell out of everything. But cooking the snot out of everything will get rid of anything that will actually kill you. I don't believe the enterotoxins do life-threatening stuff, but you don't want to, but don't take my word for it. Also, everyone hesitates to make uh, kind of like pronouncements on things like that where, you know, safety is a giant issue. Oh, okay, now back to, before we leave, because we're about to leave here, cutting it short so that these guys don't sweat themselves to death, what is it that I'm going to do, like, what, like we've got to decide this right now. Like if we make if we make ninety thousand, I got some I mean, ideas. I guess I, I guess I could do the lemonade cleanse, but that's just that's just an absurdity. That's just a physical challenge. I don't have to learn any new cooking techniques or do anything kind of interesting. It's not like going raw vegan. I mean, that was kind of the be all end all, huh? I mean, I, I can do that again. There's got to be some fad diets, right? Like paleo, you know. I th- oh I've yeah, been looking I mean, online. Like paleo. Is I've been that looking online. A rough one to do or no? I don't know, man. You tell me, brother. There's um, 
There's also stuff like the baby food diet. Uh, what the hell is that? I guess you uh, you replace two meals a day with jars of baby food. Um, that's just absurd. That's not like that's not like a challenge. It's just ridiculous. It's just like you know, can I eat something that tastes bad? But it's also, I mean, you're you're doing some investigation into a diet that actually has some traction with some people in the U.S. But should we do paleo? It's is paleo pa- difficult to to stick to though, or is it easy to stick to? Uh, Piper, do you know what's in the paleo diet? It's like mostly raw meat. All right, here's it. All right, uh, if we hit ninety thousand, I'm going to do paleo for a week. If we hit a hundred thousand, I'm going to do paleo for a week and then lemonade cleanse for a week. If we do a hundred and ten thousand dollars, I'm going to do raw vegan again for a week, paleo for a week, and lemonade cleanse for a week. You got that, guys? Does that sound fair? Yeah, you'll be at your ideal weight in no time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, you have to do it in an order. Like, what well, the worst order would be to do lemonade cleanse, then raw vegan? No, the worst would be. Worst would be raw vegan, then uh, paleo, then lemonade cleanse, right? Yep. That would be, just be like, my body would be like, what? What? Um, but here's be, the thing. For those of you that don't know me, uh, or this is the first time you're tuning in, whatever, I never, never, never welch on a bet. Now, let me tell you something. I take bets very seriously. If I say something like this, I'm not, gonna, I'm not that guy who's going to sneak in some real people food in the middle of my like, raw vegan week or the middle of my paleo week, right? Like, that's not, that's not my style. I'm going to take it. I'm going to go ape on it. I'm going to report it back on cooking issues. So tell everyone that you want me to suffer for a maximum three weeks straight on this. And let's get some money in. Let's get this thing kickstarted. Let's get our stuff going. It's important for the museum, which hopefully is going to be important to all of us in the years rolling forward. Uh, Thanks for stopping by, guys. And cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.